Well, good morning, church. Open with me to Genesis chapter 2. Continue our study through this opening book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be in verse 18. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before you on a rainy and stormy day, but as we sang, that this is the day that you have made, whether it be bright and sunny or whether it be dreary and rainy, it's a day that you have given, given for purposes that are clear for your church to come before you and worship you according to your word, according to how you desire to be worshipped, for purposes that are designed and prepared beforehand for your individual people and families, and Lord, also purpose for your creation. The way this world was designed is in accordance to the way that you designed it. You are creator and you are sustainer. The way that you have wired your world is the way that it is intended to work. And when those wires are cut and those wires are crossed, things don't turn on, things short out, and things catch fire. So Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you will, we will, will understand more of how it is wired, understand how it is from scripture that we derive these truths. And in doing so, we live a life of orthodoxy, of right teaching, aligned with your word, not with our hearts, not with our reason, not with the tossing waves and whims of our culture, but according to your word, delivered by your spirit and your son. It's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. Well, church, we've been going through Genesis 1 through 3, and as we've stated, this is an essential study because this establishes the core and foundational truths of not just Christianity, not just a system of doctrine, not just a system of teaching, but the entirety of how the world works. We started off by those few words at the beginning of Genesis 1, in the beginning God. And that principle, that presupposition, that truth being the very first thought 
the very first thing that goes beneath anything and everything we ever might and ever could know and understand. We then moved on to understanding how God created the world. It's his creation. He dictates how it works and what works in it. We talked about how God created man and woman in his image. We, create, we talked about how God created man and women with dignity. We talked about how he's given us the Sabbath. Every one of these things is an irreducibly complex but irreducible part of his creation. And with that same mentality, we come to today's topic, as we talked about in Genesis 2, 18 through 24, that God created men and women. If you were to go and attack a building, let's not do this. This is all theoretical, of course. If you were to try to, for, uh, to, to, to attack a stronghold, a castle, a city with walls built around it, if you were trying to take a position for military purposes, where would you aim your fire if you had heavy artillery? You wouldn't aim it for the top. That might be, be dramatic to watch the, the, the towers and the ramparts fall. But all that would actually do at the end of the day would, would cripple your enemy, but it wouldn't create a pathway for you to get inside. And in many ways, all that would do would create a problem, but it would build up around the perimeter of that building a greater complex problem for you to overcome if you want to storm that building. If you want to destroy a structure, if you want to destroy an edifice, then you focus your attention at the bottom. You focus your attention at the foundation. Anyone who's ever played Django with someone who has no concept of gravity or engineering understands this principle. Because that person, be it a child or an adult, will go down to the bottom, wiggle that bottom piece, and realize it's not going to fall over right away so I can take this out. But we've all played that game, and we understand that in short order, the entire tower is going to fall over, and it's going to be loud, and someone's going to have to pick up the entire thing. And chances are, it's not going to be the person that was foolhardy enough to pull out that bottom piece. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's from Psalm 11. And every one of the principles that we've talked about in Genesis 1 and 2 thus far are principles that if they are removed, the tower is going to crumble. If artillery is fired into them by the church or by the world, then the entire edifice of doctrine will fall apart. What we're talking about today, men and women created in God's image, men and women valuable to God, men and women designed by God, marriage design meant for men and women. This is not only a foundational truth, but in our present moment, this is a watershed issue that defines not only culture, but also Christianity. The idea of men and women being created by God in a particular way for a particular purpose and then with marriage as an end in mind for them is something that, as you are probably well aware, 
is a point of great confusion in the greater culture, but is also a watershed issue and a dividing line within those who claim the moniker of Christianity. It's important that we understand this. And as I mentioned earlier, it's important that we take our cues from Scripture. You may feel one way. Your experience may dictate one thing. But if our feelings and our experience and the pragmatism that grows out of those things is what ultimately drives us, then this can be completely discounted. God's truth, if you are going to subject it to your feelings, your experiences, your circles of influence, if it is going to be interpreted through that lens, then ultimately it is not an authority anymore. It is simply a book. It is simply a work of fiction. But we don't believe that, church. We believe it's divine revelation. We believe that it is what God has given us to show us and to guide us, to reveal something about himself first and foremost, but then to reveal something about ourself from him, from the creator. The creature is dictated by the creator. The creature is not dictated by the creature. The sculptor defines what the sculpture is going to look like. The sculpture does not define itself. And so with that said, we will continue to go to this text to talk about men and women created by God. So first, and this is essential, and this is actually something that we didn't even talk about in this morning's text we talked about last week, men and women are both valuable to God. This is essential. This is actually the first thing that we get to understand when we are going through the text. Men and women are both valuable to God. Everything that we talked about last week, about man being created in God's image, talking about the dignity of the unborn, talking about the dignity of all people in life, talking about the dignity of those who are in, even in dire circumstances of age and in health, all are created in God's image. What it says in Genesis 1.27 is that God created man in his own image, man there, of course, not being some attempt to establish the patriarchy, not being some attempt to erase women, but simply being the category that all people, whether they be unborn people or whether they be aged people, whether they be disabled people, whether they be super gifted people, all people are in that category of man. God created man in that, his own image, and then it goes on to say, in the image of God, he created him, Male and female, he created them. So everything that we said last week about the image of God and the dignity that it imbues upon every human life is applied equally male and female. We get to that before we even hear about how Eve comes onto the scene. We get this before we get into chapter 2. But it's important to understand that men and women are both valuable to God. There's equality as fellow image bearers. Women are not second-class citizens, and this is something that our culture does not struggle with explicitly, but culture struggle with, and Christianity even struggles with sometimes. Men and women are fellow image bearers. There's equality in that. And we actually see this uh, being played out later as we get into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So again, you're, you're understanding and hopefully seeing how these foundational principles build upon one another. So just as last week we talked about how the image of God is equally applied across ages, 
right? No matter how large or small someone is, where they are located, whether they're inside the womb or outside the womb, whether they are in a nursing home or whether they are incredibly abled, no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what their socioeconomic class is, all people bear the image of God. And the same thing is true as it regards salvation. There is no limiting factor based upon all of those criteria I established a moment ago on those who are able to receive Christ. Christ died for many, he said. And consequently, male and female are seen in equal terms when it comes to salvation. God does not have some quota where for every three men, one woman is saved or vice versa. There is equality in salvation. Just as there is equality as fellow image bearers, there's equality in salvation. Now, church, this is radical compared to the world's perspective. And in fact, one of the great um, criticisms that's brought against Scripture is this perspective that it is patriarchal. And the fact of the matter, it is patriarchal. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's become one of these dirty words in our culture. That the, that the idea of a patriarchal culture is bad. Again, this is hardwired into Scripture. This is something that God establishes. But of course, it's a patriarchy as established by God, not as dictated by a culture that's abusing it. Any sort of patriarchy that deviates from Scripture is an abuse and a perversion of the patriarchy that's established by God. We'll look at that again in a moment. But the fact of the matter is is that the biblical perspective of the things that we just talked about here a moment ago, that there's equality as fellow image bearers between male and female, and there's equality in salvation. So that is to say, the ultimate end of the religious picture of Christianity, salvation, that there's equality in that perspective also. So equality in creation and equality in salvation, this is radical compared to the world. This is radical compared to the world from a secular standpoint. This is radical compared to other world religions. And this is radical, certainly, compared to aberrant perspectives on Christianity, views of the Bible that go askew from orthodox historical teaching. This perspective, that there's equality in the value and the dignity in male and female, that there's no second-class citizens, and that there's equal access to the presence of God, there's equal access to salvation, is unique in biblical Christianity. There's always a struggle outside of biblical Christianity. So Christian sects that begin to stray away from the biblical ideal, that is where you begin to see struggles, where you see women elevated over men, or you see men elevated over their God-given station with women where you see that dynamic, where you see the, that disjunction, where you see the full effects, as we'll talk about in a few weeks ago, of one of the aspects of the curse that is given in the fall, of this struggle between male and female. There's always a struggle outside of the picture of the value of men and women in creation as fellow image bearers and as equal in salvation. So this is the first principle, and again, this doesn't even touch on the text that we looked at today, but it, it informs it. Genesis 1.27, if my chronology is right, comes before Genesis 2.18. The first thing that we're introduced to before we even meet Adam and Eve really in detail is the fact that they are both, once we meet people, that male and female are created in the image of God. So men and women are both valuable to God. 
This is, the, this is the foundational thing. This is the principle. This is the beginning of the apologetic for biblical sexuality and biblical gender and biblical marriage. This is the beginning of that argument that men and women are both valuable to God. That must be said because so many of the red herrings about the Christian view of the patriarchy, the Christian view of gender, the Christian view of sexuality, the Christian view of marriage, the Christian view of all of these things is built upon, again, the red herring or the false argument or the bad presupposition that there is some sort of inequality between male and female from a creational perspective. But we have to shoot that down. It is a false argument, and it is established in Genesis 1 that that's a false argument. So men and women are both valuable to God. But then we move on to to verse 18, and we see that men and women are designed by God. Men and women are specifically, intricately designed by God. So again, in verse 18, it says, Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And he goes on to say how God made all the other critters and all the other critters were good, as we saw in Genesis 1, and that Adam named all these things. Again, a picture of the dominion that Adam has over them. But there was not a helper that was found suitable for Adam. Adam was incomplete. Now, of course, I think this is essential to understand. In the context of Genesis 2, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this is seen from a ground-level view. So what we can't say is that God made all the animals, fish and birds and crawling things, and he made Adam, and he thought, "This this is great. I've got this all figured out. And it sounds so crass to even say that, but sometimes we have those assumptions. And then God realized that once the machine started running, that he was missing an integral part of of what would make this thing really hum. That's not what happened. Again, we see in Genesis 1, from that thousand-foot perspective, looking down on all of creation, that God created man man and women. He had this as his plan the whole time. But from that ground-level view, from almost from Adam's perspective, God in his providence... God in his time, God in his covenant relationship, again, we're using that name, Yahweh God, this intimate relationship between God and Adam. Adam sees that he has a need that he cannot meet himself. Adam cannot meet meet this need with any animal. Adam cannot meet this need with any plant, and he cannot meet this need of his own person. So what does a gracious God who has a perfect plan for his creation do. In verse 21, Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. We could spend a lot of time talking about the biological perspective of the rib removal and what that means. And in fact, there's, if you go to the commentaries, David mentioned you know, picking up the, the New City Catechism with the commentary blurbs in it. If you were to go to a book that has a bunch of blurbs from a bunch of commentaries regarding Genesis 2.21, you're going to get a lot of interesting ideas as to why God took a rib out of Adam and he used that to create Eve. Again, we saw this with Adam, with the creation of Adam, whereas every other creature was created by what? Created by God's word and God's word alone. But Adam was created out of the ground. There was a special way in which Adam was created. Again, distinguishing Adam outside of all of the other distinctions that is made in the creation of Adam from the rest of creation. And here we have 
woman being created out of man in a similar way. I think some of the most compelling arguments for why it happened this way, first and foremost, because God wanted to do it. I think that's essential that we, we uh, yeah, if you, if you struggle with Eve being created out of Adam, but you're okay with God creating everything else by his word, there's, there's a problem there. I think we should acknowledge that. But secondly, because it shows the unity. It shows the idea of one flesh. As we'll talk about here when we get to the picture of marriage, this is the, the reunion as it is. Uh, marriage is a reunion of man and woman going from when man and woman were, were united prior to Eve being created. And that's the most compelling picture and reason why God used the flesh and bone of Adam. And I think we understand that. Again, fast-forwarding a little bit to talking about marriage, we understand this idea of flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, the physical aspect of the covenantal union that occurs in marriage. There's more to it than that, but there's not less than that, church. And so this is men and women are designed by God. There was purpose. There was, there was, there was intentionality in what we see in this. And what we, what we see most, most plainly and what the world has seen and most cultures have seen and what most people know in their hearts of heart most clearly, first of all, is that this is manifested in the fact that humanity is gendered, that there is a gender binary. This is the biblical pattern of creation. It's the biblical pattern for biology. It's the biblical pattern and necessity for procreation. And it is the biblical pattern for culture. Scripture establishes in the opening chapters of Genesis this truth that has been understood virtually without exception for the entirety of the creation order of the world. The idea of gender, of male and female, he created them. Of male and female being complementary, not only from a physical and biological perspective, but also from a role perspective. What man needs and can't find in himself, he receives from the woman. What a woman needs and cannot find from herself, she finds in the man. These things, they are established as the presupposition of Scripture. I think this is essential to, to point out. So often these days, and, and not, I'm not saying this to dance around the issues because there's young ears in the room, because if they are at the store or if the television's on, they're going to hear these things as well, but this is an, almost an auxiliary issue to the good, proper teaching of what we see in Scripture. But so many of the arguments that are made towards all of the aberrant perspectives on sexuality these days are made from there's no clear teaching in Scripture that says this is wrong. And, the, and although that is not a perfectly appropriate argument for them to make, as we'll see here in a second as we go to the New Testament, it's an argument that doesn't need to be made. Because the clarity for the true thing is made so it's plain. The nature of male and female is laid out in the earliest chapters of Genesis as in, and is repeated as the presupposition, again, for the pattern of creation, for biology, for procreation, and for culture, all the way through the ensuing 65 books of the Bible, such that talking about things being wrong and backwards don't need to be addressed head on. 
And so consequently, what has to be done by somebody who wants to take a different perspective, one of the letters that is represented by the view that they want to, to, to uh, be a proponent of, you have to go back into Genesis 1 and 2 and say, this is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying something different. And if you take that piece out, if you take one of those, that piece out, then what other pieces are you taking out? And this is the challenge. Again, as I said earlier, this is the challenge for taking this as worth the paper it's printed on. If you take this element out, what else are you going to take out? If God cannot define gender, then what else can he not define? Certainly, he can't define salvation. He can't define creation order. He can't define the dignity of man. And again, we see in a culture where the foundation is crumbling, all of these resultant doctrines are continuing, continuing to fall down. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 uses this base confusion as the ultimate example of people turning from God. In Romans chapter 1, it says, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's talking about all who sin. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire towards one another, males with males, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons this due penalty of error. Of all of the sins, and the Apostle Paul gives these sin lists, these, these lists of sins that, he, that you see over and over again in his epistles, and how these demonstrate the depravity of man. When he talks about, in Romans chapter 1, what is the most extreme picture of man turning away from creator and focusing on the creation, he uses, notice this, females exchanging the natural function which is for what is unnatural. And I think you see that most, most clearly, not only in the sexual realm, but in the procreation realm. Women and the wonderful gift of motherhood, I mean, this is really what is under attack today. All of the, the, the beauty of motherhood, the beauty of procreation, the blessing that we have in this church, in this room right now, of seeing how life is being brought forth, that is what's under attack. You know, our culture is, makes so much, so much of dressing up and imitating other ethnicities. How that will get you canceled unless you want to run to be prime minister of Canada, in which case apparently it's acceptable. In so many other ways that this is one of the cardinal sins of our culture. Yet our culture is completely fine with men taking on the picture of this beautiful God-ordained Motherhood, being a woman, giving birth, and assuming that that is something normal. And again, this goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. This is the beginning of our apologetic church. This is the beginning of our argument. Establishing the right and the good and the beautiful and the true. This is what we built our, our, our faith on. It's not anti-anything. It's pro-something. It is not talking about the, the deviance and the perversion. It's talking about the goodness of gender. Talking about the goodness of male and female. And as we said earlier in Genesis 2, 
that they are designed to be suitable to one another, to be helpers to one another, to complete one another, given by God. If we want to attach one of the Ten Commandments, then actually the two, two commandments that David brought up this morning, the Ninth Commandment, to do not lie, the Tenth Commandment, to do not covet, these, along with some other ones that are in there, are directly being violated when we call one thing something else. Keep that in mind as you contemplate the pronouns to use. Coveting, at wanting what has not been given to you and changing to make that your reality. That is coveting. Everything goes back to the Ten Commandments. This is not a violation of a cultural norm. This is not a violation of, of, of a system that has been created by man. This is a violation of not only the Ten Commandments, not only God's distillation of those commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a violation of the very creational order of every molecule in the universe. So men and women are designed by God, and we see that in gender, we also see men and women designed by God in headship. So again, it's necessary that before we launch into this, we remember where we were when we talked about men and women both being valuable to God, that both men and women are created in the image of God, that both men and women are equal in salvation. That being said, God has a biblical pattern of creation a biblical pattern for the home, and a biblical pattern for the church. This is where things get wacky, when, with specifically within aspects of Christianity, where we begin with these verses on, for example, submission between wives towards husbands. We begin there, and then we go back, and we see the creation picture in Genesis 1 and 2 as some sort of adjunct teaching. But if we begin with Genesis 1 and 2, and we see the equality of the genders, and we see the equality of the, in both as image bearers and also as saved by Christ, and we use that as our basis, then we have a completely different picture when we get to the idea of headship in the home and headship in the church. Because then it is not lording over. It is not domineering. It is helping. It is comp being compatible. It is being suitable to one another. Yet, there is the biblical pattern of headship. And that headship is husband over the wife in the, in the, in, in the home. It is male eldership in the church. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. If we get hung up on the, for the husband is the head of the wife, and we get in a twist over that, but we lose sight of the second verse, then that is where all these problems come from. If we see the husband is the head of the wife, and that feels like it gives us license to be domineering and to be a brute in the home, then we're doing it wrong. If we're seeing the husband is the head of the wife, and that gets us all a titter, and we, we are unable to even fathom how anybody could conform to biblical Christianity, we're missing the picture. Again, this is built upon Genesis 1 and 2, but the next verse in Ephesians 5 says, as Christ also is the head of the church. Women, do you want to be led like Christ is led? Christ leads his church. If the answer is no, then your problem is not with male headship, your problem is with Christ. Husbands, do you want to love your wives as Christ loved the church? If you say, no, I want to go further than that, I want to do more than that, then your problem is not with headship, your problem is with Christ. Again, Christ is our orienting 
element. Christ is our point on the horizon. Christ is the one who dictates where the compass aims. And so, biblical headship is Christ loving the church. It's Christ very often serving. It's Christ very often putting the other's interests ahead of his own. It's Christ being the one who is brought to the cross. Headship is not a domineering issue only. Headship is a great, great sacrifice. And if we notice, again, don't want to spoil the story of Genesis 1 through 3, but even though Eve eats the apple or the fruit first, who is held responsible? Adam's held responsible. It goes both ways. There is, as the sage of the 20th century, Spider-Man, was told, with great power comes great responsibility. He himself, Christ, is Savior of the body. And the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think we have to understand when it comes to the idea of headship, there's nothing to do with intellect. There's many women, many women smarter than their husbands. It has not to do with capability. Women are capable of so many things. This is why, again, the idea of men giving birth is such an affront to nature and creation and God's, God's revelation to us. The capacity and the capability for women to give birth, I'm very thankful that God has given me my role. It's not about desire for headship. It's about submission to God's word. Once again, as we talked about with gender when it comes to headship, if you want to remove this piece, what else is going to crumble after it? That is a consequence that we've seen in so many, culture, in, in so many aspects of a culture. And in fact, so many of the denominations within our culture, within the United States, not even just Western civilization, but within the United States, as they removed this piece from their doctrines because it's outdated, because it's, it's the kind of mode that we don't need to live anymore. This was something for a different culture. And although we're supposed to respect all cultures, we have to say it's a wrong thing about those cultures. But this has moved out of so many of the mainline denominations, and you've seen where that has led them. Compromising not only in male headship, but in the issue of gender that we've talked about before. Not just talking about male headship and not just talking about gender, but also the image of God, as many have compromised on issues of abortion and end of life. You see how this Jenga analogy, this foundation analogy, is a perfect picture. You remove one thing because it's inconvenient, you take your black sharpie to God's word, and all of a sudden everything else starts to crumble beyond it. So there's a quality, as we've already said, but there's also an economy. There's an, eco an, an equality within the genders, but there's also an economy within the genders. And it's a complementary economy. Headship and submission, service and being love, respect. There's so much more we could say about this and so much more we did say as we were going through our statement of faith, but we're going to continue on this morning. Men and women are both valuable to God. Men and women are designed by God. And thirdly, marriage is meant for men and women. Marriage is meant for men and women. You notice marriage is part of creation. This is not something that was invented by somebody. This is not something that a, a culture thought of. It's not something that the state thought of. It's not something that the church thought of. 
marriage is a part of creation. Continuing in Genesis 2 and verse 22, it says, And Yahweh God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man, into a woman, and he brought her to the man. I mean, I've heard, you know, what was this interaction like? I, I've, it's, it's so cheesy, and I, I really want to not do it, but I'm, I'm, I can't stop myself, because I don't think I've ever done this before. I've heard it a lot, and so here it is. Why did Adam call her woman? Because when God brought her to him, he said, Whoa, man, that's so bad. I'm sorry. It's terrible. And it's, I mean, Adam wasn't speaking English, so that wouldn't work out anyway, but sorry to ruin that fun sermon joke. But he, he brought her to him. And the man said, This one finally. I love the way that the, that the LSB renders it. This one finally. How long was Adam there naming the animals? We don't know. How long was Adam there taking care of the garden on his own? I don't know. But however long it was, when he saw his bride, when he saw the one that would complete him, when he saw the one that was designed specifically for him, he said, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. And then notice what we are given in Genesis 2. The doctrine of marriage. The doctrine of a foundational human institution that is understood and recognized by virtually all, all civilizations throughout time and in all places. That it's not simply just an act for procreation. That it's not simply something that is done for convenience. But that it is a foundational building block of civilization, of society, and of humanity. It says in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. There you have that, that closeness picture. It's a, it's a phrase that gets used so frequently as we talk about marriage, as we have wedding ceremonies, and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God took them apart to create, and he's bringing them back together in marriage of this covenant. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That last verse 25 is more on their innocence, pre-fall, but it still shows the beauty and the glory of the union that they enjoyed with one another. Marriage is a part of creation. But it wasn't just this idea of, of something that would be nice. You know, Adam was lonely. No, as, as we'll talk about next Sunday, there's a creational mandate, and part of that creational mandate is filling the earth. And how is that meant to be brought about? God wasn't in the business of raising up clumps of dust and breathing life into them. It wasn't, you know, Adam would have run out of ribs eventually. No, his plan for fulfilling the creation mandate came through procreation. This biological reality has an established root in the male and the female being created as complementary, biological, but also ontological, also individually created for particular purpose individuals. Marriage is meant for men and women. So marriage is a part of creation. And marriage is one man and one woman. That is God's purpose. And again, this is directly built off the pattern of creation. We see this reinforced. Again, this is not some sort of archaic concept that these, these desert nomads had that was not meant for the rest of time. Christ himself in Matthew 19 says, as he's challenged by some Pharisees on the issue of divorce... Jesus answers and says, Has you not, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning 
made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is a remarkable text, church. I alluded to it last week when we talked about the dignity of man. I actually alluded to it a few weeks ago when we talked about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, both being part of, the, of God's inspired text. They weren't two additions that were later added on. Christ here says in Matthew 19, God made them male and female, going all the way back to Genesis 1, and then, for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother, bringing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together in concert, showing that they're harmonious pictures of God's intentionality for creation. So the Pharisees were trying to trip up Jesus, appealing to their relatively liberal rules for divorce that they had established in the centuries prior to the Incarnation. And Christ blows their, their, their questioning out of the water and saying, this is God's intention. You guys are doing this because of the hardness of your heart. You guys are doing this because of your sin. Divorce, although excusable under certain circumstances, is not God's design. It is not God's purpose. God's creation picture, God's creational pattern was for them to leave and to cleave. One man and one woman. So once again... So often today, there's no verse that explicitly prohibits a man and a man, a woman and a woman, two men, one woman. You say, oh, that's out of line. And we're only about 45 minutes from one of the few places in the United States that allows such things. Cambridge does it. Somerville does it. All these things that people said, oh, that would never happen. And here we are, a picture of man's depravity. Jesus doesn't address these issues, probably because for all the things they had wrong in that culture, they still had some semblance of what a man was and what a woman was. They had some semblance of what marriage actually could be. But what Jesus does when he answers these hard questions is he doesn't rail against their wrong view. He lifts up and he praises and he emphasizes the good and the true, and the beautiful, that God made them male and female, and because of that, they will come together and become one flesh. Christ himself appeals to creation. Christ himself was the agent of creation through whom all things were created, including men and women. Well, this, I think, is worthwhile mentioning. Although marriage is meant for men and women, there are some who are single. Let's not rule that out. Singleness. The Apostle Paul actually addresses this. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I want you to be free from concern. He's talking about Christian service. He says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. So much could be said about this, but I think it just bears mentioning that Although singleness may be for a time, for a season, or for a lifetime, this does not mean that a person is defaulting on the creational mandate. This does not mean that a person is somehow outside of God's will. Certainly, we could speculate on what an unfallen world would look like and how everyone, every man and every woman would have some sort of Adam and Eve moment and understand this is the one that God has given to me, but we don't know what that looks like. 
And we don't understand singleness as far as how it, it, it is a result of the fall, as a result of circumstance. We don't know that. But the Apostle Paul, again, is not giving the theology of singleness. He's giving pastoral wisdom about singleness. How whether it be for a time or for a season or for a life, it doesn't mean that you're outside of God's plan. It doesn't mean that you're outside of God's family. And we talk so often in this church about the value of family and about the value of coming together as a family. And it's in that context where singleness is actually a, a, something that is, is, sees its fullness. Although, although the home may not be a family, the church is a family ministering to those who are single because of circumstances, who are single because of choices, and all those different situations. God is able to minister, and as it says here in 1 Corinthians, they are able to minister to God. I think it's worth mentioning, though, as is the case with the garden, as is the case with image bearers, that marriage is about a greater reality than a happy home. Marriage is, ought not be an idol, and in fact, the idea of marriage being an idol, and certainly segments of Christianity have done this, and the world has done this in different times and different ways, there's a greater reality than a happy home in marriage. And Paul says in Ephesians, we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5, later in that text he says, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Again, this is where a thorough reading of Scripture and a full application of Scripture in the Spirit, with God's help, in the context of the local church, this is where all of these problems with the ideas of headship and things like that hopefully get dealt with. Once more, he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. How? Just as Christ also does the church. Christ doesn't demean his church. Christ is not heavy-handed with his church. Christ does not abuse his church. Christ loves his church because we are members of his body. And then the Apostle Paul really goes beyond, you know, through the curtain and explains to us what this whole marriage thing is about. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, appealing to this Genesis 2 reality, showing how the reverberations of this truth of what God has established all the way back at beginning are continue to reverberate and influence the entirety of creation all the way up to Paul's time and to today. This mystery, marriage, is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Our marriages ought to be sermons to our children of Christ's love for his church and the church's love for Christ. Our marriages ought to be sermons to a watching world which doesn't even know what marriage is anymore, about how it's more than pleasing ourselves, of finding gratification in this moment, about how it points to a reality that transcends two people. Our marriages ought to preach to each other the goodness of Christ and his church. That's what's underneath it, church. That's, what's, that's what's, what, what undergirds our marriages. And it preaches. 
Men and women are both valuable to God. Men and women are designed by God. Marriage is meant for men and women. How many of us have this all right? Admittedly, I've had some very strong words about some of the things that are wrong in our culture. Things are very, very wrong in our culture. But we can't sit here and say, they've got it all wrong and we've got it all right. Issues of gender, issues of headship, issues of divorce, issues of, of roles, all of those things are things that we struggle with. Some are seen as more appropriate within the context of the church, and some are seen as more anathema, more scary sins. There's brokenness that we all bring into this because of our gender. The fall influenced our very understanding of what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, we'll see that in Genesis 3, and what it means to be man and wife. The church needs to be a place where broken people can come and be ministered to, irrespective of the nature of their brokenness. You have to understand that confusion in these matters is often the root of people's despair. I think we're on the precipice of a time where this, 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 this progressive nature of culture, which is in the business of chewing up and spitting out whoever is inconvenient for their narrative, is going to leave a wake of broken people behind it. Those who bought into a lie about what they can do through surgery and through medication to change themselves. And when they are no longer convenient to the narrative of our culture, the culture is not going to be any place for them to find respite. And the church needs to be that place. Our gag reflex ought not to be the first thing that comes to our minds. Our understanding of Scripture's truth about these things and their complexity and how they are wrong needs to be held firmly in one hand and our love through Christ needs to be held firmly in the other. Salvation isn't found in gender. Salvation isn't found in marriage. And salvation isn't even found in the purity of creation because the purity of creation was defaulted upon within a short order. All that we get in the world's view of gender, the world's view of marriage, and the world's view of creation is the revelation of the despair of sin. Our message as transformed, regenerated people in Christ is that salvation is only found in Christ. Salvation is not found in a significant other. Salvation is not found in a surgery. Salvation is not found in a flag that is in direct violation of the covenant made by God to his people in loving kindness. Salvation is not found in a community of disparate parts. The only thing linking them is deviancy. Salvation is only found in God. Christ is the only one who can reconcile us to God and remove despair. No one with any brokenness is beyond his saving power. Christ is the one who explains creation. Christ is the one who explains God. Christ loves us. Christ renews us. That is the message of the gospel. That is what we need to bring to a watching and a hurting world.
That's the message of the kingdom. Salvation, salvation, salvation. Well, church, every one of us is going to come to this table here in a moment with brokenness. It may be brokenness that is in complete line of everything that we talked about today, but inevitably that brokenness has led to our need for a Savior. And it's led to our need for a Savior who does not save us once. We were not saved only you know, kneeling down at an altar. We were not saved raising our hand at a crusade. We were not saved kneeling at our bedside, and then things were over, and he left us to our own devices. Our salvation is a continual thing. Our justification does happen at one moment. He takes us from darkness to light. His Holy Spirit regenerates us and brings us into, into, into a relationship with him. But our salvation is continual. And just like every one of these issues, particularly, I mean, you go to a Christian bookstore and you try to find one book on marriage and you'll find a hundred. This is an issue that we need to be constantly conforming ourselves to the image of Christ, how we view our spouse. But even today, I think it's been so clear that our, our perspective on our view towards the world is something that we need to be in constant state of being refreshed by God's word. And that's part of what the table is about. The table is about God's renewal of his covenant with us. Inasmuch as on, on a yearly basis, the children of Israel would celebrate Passover to have this reminder of the covenant that God established to be their God, for him to be their people, and to deliver them out of bondage and out of slavery. This supper that we take part in every time we gather together is an opportunity to remember that God has made those promises to you. And so if you are in Christ... Not if you are adjacent to Christ, not if you find yourself under a steeple or wearing a cross, but if you are in Christ, that his blood covers you, that you have died to self and through repentance and faith, that you are in Christ, then this is your table. And this is the nourishment to be renewed, to be strengthened, to be conformed more into the image of Christ today and next week and the week after until he comes. So John is going to come up and Lead us in a song. You can come up and receive the elements and bring them back to your chairs. And following that, we will take part in the supper together. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are a people who stray. The most lost that you can get in the woods is if in your first step is in the wrong direction. If we take Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and we disregard the clear teaching, the teaching that is assumed through the rest of the scriptures, the teaching that is emphasized and underlined and applied throughout the rest of the scriptures, the teaching that when it is violated, we see the dire consequences throughout the rest of the scriptures. If we open up to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and we take a step in the wrong direction, because we don't like it, because it's inconvenient, then where we ultimately end up is far, far away from you. We all do this by violating the command to love you. And so you call us back. You save us. No one is beyond your salvation. No one is beyond the power of the blood of your Son. 
And so, Lord, as we take the supper here in a moment, convict us. Convict us of how we've wronged each other. Convict us first and foremost how we've wronged you, our creator, who dictates who we are, what this world is supposed to be like, and how he ought to be worshipped. We thank you and praise you in the name of your son. Amen.